right, so we'll get into it. Um, Tony Griffin, thanks very much for coming on. It's a pleasure, Liam. I suppose um, anyone following the GA Championship will see a lad called Tony Kelly from Bellier, but the first Tony from Bellier was man of Tony Griffin. <laughs> um, All-star hurler, best-selling author, charity founder, any other um, strings to your bow there that stand out? Jeez, I, I make a half-decent apple crumble apart from that. So. <laughs> It's if funny you, though when you're introduced like okay. that based on what you it's just funny when you're introduced based on things that like you kind of done it probably doesn't say a lot about who you are but yeah that's 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 a good version yeah we'll, for go, we'll get to it later but from going through your thing your career i'd say you don't like attaching your identity to taglines or yeah i'm not precious either like i'm very proud of all those things you said and at the time they were huge challenges that at times seemed insurmountable but looking back it's just uh, yeah no no I'm not precious about how I'm introduced I don't really care to be honest you have a new book out I have it here the teenagers book of life um, good on I got, you I got on the early copies nice um, so I suppose starting off how did the book come about actually someone that we both know um I was writing a book I was around 13,000 words in and um, I was kind of, it's not that I was, I was had writer's block, but I just knew that it wasn't coming as clearly as I'd like. And then my wife and I had a baby boy last May, May 13th. And when Jesse was born, I just shelled that book because I just, uh, I was doing more important things. But uh, a mutual friend of ours, Paul Flanagan, texted me one evening and said, will you give me some quotes for teenagers? So on evenings during May, when I was trying to get Jesse to sleep and he wouldn't sleep. I bring, bring him for drives. And one evening in particular, I was thinking about the quotes that Paul had asked for or a quote. And I, and I said, what if I gave a quote, not that usually adults would give, like I usually an adult quote to a teenager would be, you know, believe in yourself and do your best and you can achieve your dreams. And I met a lot of young people who didn't even know what the dream was or didn't believe in themselves um, or any of that. So I said, how could I write a, what kind of quote would I say that's really honest and I sent Paul a quote which was the most important relationship you'll ever have in your life is with yourself every other is secondary and then it was like a tap just turned on and I just kept coming up with these quotes and in the morning I'd be feeding Jesse like at 5am and I just start writing them down and before I knew it I had like 16 17 pages written and I was saying to myself, ah, oh, I'm not going to write a book for teenagers. Ah, oh, like I thought I was going to move on from that phase of life. And I said, I want to write a book with a little bit more meat than that. And then as I was writing, I said, oh, no, hold on. This is actually a really impactful book dressed up as a book for teenagers. So I just kept going. And I think it was eight weeks later, I finished it and handed it to who was publishing slash producing it for me. And um, that was it. It was, uh, I won't say it was effortless because it was a lot of juggling, trying to like feed Jesse and be of support at home, but then get to my small office and write for a few hours. So there was a bit, a bit of juggling. But once, every time I sat down, three and four hours would pass without blinking an eye. So um, it was a joy to write. Yeah, I was reading through it since I got it. And I think it can be for anyone. I don't think it's necessarily confined to just teenagers. There's... Mm-hmm. I think everyone struggles with yeah. all the things you mentioned in the book and you can always learn something from it. Um, why, why was something like this not around up until now? Like a guidebook for, for teenagers? It's such a good question because I ordered the books, you know, like 
they say your gift is your curse. And I think one of my gifts, if I was to call it a gift, would be I kind of see the end point of what I want to do very clearly. But then one of my curses is the fact that I get petrified about what I'm, I second guess myself. And I often have to persevere savagely in the early stages of an idea or a concept because I'm riddled with the fear that it's not going to work. But I, I seem to keep going when it's the right idea. With this, I remember second guessing myself and I said, look, just gather some data. So I ordered the books that seem to be for quite popular for teenagers. And I was reading them saying, I don't know one teacher, teenager who would read this. Maybe a highly intellectual teenager who like, who's a bookworm, but even they, surely they wouldn't buy this stuff. Like, cause it was well-intentioned adults writing as an adult. Um, and I just thought a lot of them were patronizing, really well-intentioned, but the teenagers I'd met over 10 years, they wouldn't stay engaged with it. it the book would lose their attention. So I had a friend who was an amazing illustrator. And I said, what if we created something which kind of grabbed you? It was like a magazine almost, but there was some real life wisdom in there. And what if we, all it was, was to remind a teenager that they're wise, they don't need necessarily an adult to tell them the way even though the book is kind of doing that it's not it's telling them you are the way you know the way just remember it um so i think it's the answer to your question is i suppose i've written something based on listening to teenagers and interacting with them over a decade that i hope hits the mark because it's real as opposed to do this and you'll have a great life yeah i think from your work with sore you're a qualified person to, to have done it. And we'll get into SOAR in the second second half of the interview. But um, I suppose, what's your what's your goal for a, a 16-year-old boy or girl that picks this up? What do you want them to take away from it? It's a big ask. Like, it's a tall ask. I would love them to take away just a feeling. And the feeling would be a sense of, like, reassurance that, hold on a second. I don't need to be like the people I think I, I see on Instagram and think I should be like them or... Maybe my parents don't have a clue about who I am, but maybe I do. And this, this reassurance that maybe I'm okay and maybe I'm going to be fine. And if they took that from it, that sense of it's going to be okay and I'm going to find my way. And even like a smidgen of, of greater sense of confidence that they are wise enough to know the way. I think if they came away with that feeling, um, I think that would, be, that would be a dream come true. If you were a teenager, would this would you have liked to have this around? Oh jeez. I, <laughs> I look back like and I say, if I did teenage if I was a teenager and anybody had talked to me like this, I think I would have I would have accelerated. Like I would have it would have sped up a lot of the growth that I've experienced through life only because I would have resonated with it. Like I would have tuned into that quite quickly. And that's why I think about the teenagers that read it. It's funny you say a good few parents have contacted me saying I bought this for my child or my teenager or my nephew and I still haven't given it to them it's a week later because I'm reading it and I'm thinking this this is for me and and the reason it is is because it's for all ages not teenagers specifically it's written for teenagers but it's for anyone because they're universal concepts everything in like life love friendship death they're all universal themes that they cross age boundaries yeah and um I have a funny little anecdote. I was, I know we talked about Mick Flannery before we came on and um, I had his Mickmas, the first Mickmas you know, on in the car over Christmas and I was driving around and this book arrived one of the mornings and I was just coming back from town and I was listening to Fuck Off World 
Yeah. And um, the first page I open in the book, I see Fuck Off World written out Hilarious. in lyrics. I couldn't believe it. So I have a quote here from the song. It's, um, and I know I'm supposed to think about injustice. I know I'm supposed to fight the good fight. I know I'm supposed to care about progress. But with all of that in mind tonight, you might fuck off world. Fuck off politics. I'm going in the woods with a stick. I was just thinking, you've talked to a lot of teenagers. Is there a pressure on caring about these things? Where like you're, you're so confused as it is. And you almost have this sense of guilt that you have to care about all these things. And you're kind of thinking, like, how can I care about that? I'm trying to figure out my myself. Yeah, and very often we talk about, and I've done it myself, about, you know, the next generation to inherit the plant are going to be the ones to do it right. And can you, can you imagine being a teenager where not only are you trying to figure out who you are, you're trying to do this transition. There's close to zero societal assistance to do that, to transition from being a child to an adult. There's none, it doesn't exist in school for the most part. Most parents don't know how to do it. Don't understand that the, the, even the concept of that you're transitioning from one stage of life to another. So you're doing all that on your own and you're bombarded every time you go online saying you should be like this. You Usually by very sophisticated and sales techniques by companies marketing stuff to you to try and fill that void you have so you're bombarded by all that and then you're told you've also got to help save the world yeah it's probably a tall order and you can't leave your bedroom for a few weeks to see your friends uh, so it's yeah it's, it's it is it is a challenging time to be uh, a teenager yeah, I just think online, even as a, a young adult, I suppose, like you, you try to be your best and then you constantly just, as you said, bombarded by like you're privileged, you don't respect your position. You're kind of like, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to do myself. I, yeah, yeah. You know, it's tough. I'm clinging onto this planet, racing through space, and I don't know where I came from. I have a fair good idea of what's going to happen at the end, but then I don't know where I'm going to go to. Like, hell, no wonder we're frightened of a lot of things. And it's funny you say it because um, I sometimes, like, like every people, well, not every person, but a lot of people who go on Instagram, I, I like after Jesse was born, it was always fellas with unbelievable abs that seemed to be coming up on my feet. And I was like, that's the last thing I want to see now because I'm like existing at the moment, going meal to meal with whatever's in the house. I'm not feeling healthy. I'm definitely not feeling, um, you know, physically in good shape. And yet you're looking at all these guys in California with like 14 abs and you're saying, oh, I better get in shape. But it's like a race you can never win. So when you compare yourself to someone else like that. So I do think that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's probably an interesting time to be alive. Yeah, but I, even that thing about Instagram, as you touched on the book, it's just accepting yourself first and then you won't be too yeah. worried about them kind of things. And like I've worked with teenagers, but I've worked with a lot of adults. And then many of those adults would, would, from the outside, looking in, be high, really high achievers, you know, CEOs of companies. And when you get down to it, every person, everyone, has something they're not sure of or proud of. Um, so we're all looking for that thing you say, which is to feel good about yourself, feel comfortable in your own skin. Um, and it's, it's a very elusive jewel that people search in all types of places for, um, and very often not in the place where it is, which is, I suppose, deep inside. Yeah, just final point. I was, Operation Transformation is on, and someone was talking about it. I don't watch it now, but... I said, if, if they were to come to me, I'd say, go to a therapist first. You'll have way more success than uh, mm. kind of starving yourself and trying to stay on this diet. Because it's obviously it's yeah. something it's something a lot deeper than just calories in, calories out. 
Yeah, it's, it's probably more complicated than that. And I know that I haven't watched the show either. I think it's a brilliant concept and it's an amazingly inspiring thing. It's just fantastic in all ways. Anything that helps people be more comfortable in who they are and find their way back to, to themselves, I'm all for. Um, but you're probably, you're probably right. A lot of that, that stuff comes from deeper. Um, so, so where can people buy the book? Um, so come July 18th, July, February 18th, um, it's going to be on teenagersbookoflife.com. And it'll be in bookshops around the country. Then even though bookshops will probably be closed or they can get it on my website, tonygriffin.ie. Doesn't necessarily have to be a teenager. It can be, can be for anyone. Yeah, and I think one of the things people are going to like about it, and we're probably going to do something with the, the prints, the, the, the artistry in it, I think, is stunning. Like the girl Hazel Breen, who did all the art with, artwork, she's very talented, and someone whose star is on a rise. And I think that people will pick it up, but they'll put it back down. And if they keep picking it up, they get something different each time. Um, like, geez, I laugh my head off writing it. I bawled my eyes out writing it. Um, and half the time not knowing why. So every single word in that is real. It's, you know, it's not always, it's, it's you know, it's no war and peace, but it's, it's legitimately raw and honest. Yeah, I don't think it needs to be read, like, front to back. You can just pick out a, because it's broken down into, like, kind of big topics. You can just kind of pick one yeah. topic and, and stifle through it that's it um okay your first track oh my first track um would be to honor mick so a quick story about mick flannery um i heard mick flannery in a tiny pub in ballymore eustace in kildare and um it's uh, it's famous for having you know it can fit 30 people and they often have brilliant artists but we couldn't get in so we stood outside the window to this little pub listening to him and uh, when i was writing the book I listened to Mick Flannery on repeat, like especially a few songs, especially this song. So um, when, I, when I wrote him and said, could I have a lyric, one of your songs, that fuck off world, he came back and said, yeah, no problem. And it was perfect. He was, I didn't ask anyone else for a quote or anything. He was the only one. The song is Must Be More by Mick Flannery. You love to find little cold inside the wind that's blowing to time with the words that set the image flowing things like home and open road and keep the engine running is that all or is there more is there more
first song, isn't it, Liam? Uh, if, if, yeah, if you're struggling with angst in the world, I think Nick, Nick is the man to go to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have to watch. I have to watch when I listen to him because he's uh, he's deep. People say, um, oh, how do you listen to that? so depressing. I said, no, it's soul cleansing. Yeah, it is. So true. It's so true. So, so true. I, and I love that. I love that, like, that song, for example, There Must Be More. That's what the Teenager's Book of Life is all about. In a way, it's like, to teenagers, it's, there's more. Like, go in search of the more. It's worth it. Mick sings about it so beautifully. Yeah, he's just, he's brilliant. And it's a shame that he's not more well-known, but it's, it's not to everyone's taste, I suppose. That's it. That's okay. It. Um, so as he actually speech- has brilliant song. Sorry to interrupt you. Go on. He has an amazing song that I heard on um, Sunday morning radio, and it's an American singer. Um, there is a darkness, or I have a darkness, I think. That was off Mick Mrs. And it's a song that by was an American a singer written K- by Casey Black. Yeah, that's it. What a song. What about ge- a song. About generational sadness. It's pretty heavy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was very, I, I thought a lot, well, it's obviously about an alcoholic parent or, but I thought it's a very, um, especially with the mother and baby homes and all that's in the media and coming out and, and being cleansed. It's a, it's a song that's very apt for Ireland, I think, that generation. Yeah, definitely true, yeah. Kind of covering things up and within families and stuff. As I said earlier, you're a qualified person to talk about teenagers. Um, you set up SOAR. What is SOAR? So... I don't know how qualified I am. I think what I am is I'm very curious and I question things and always have. And that's got me into trouble over the years, especially as a kid and a teenager, like my religion class has been told, just accept it. It's just the way it is. Uh, and I'd be saying, yeah, well, how could God have a baby with a woman? You know, like that's probably 10 at the time, but how could God have a baby with a woman? But he's not real. I'd probably just learned about the facts of life a few months before. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I don't know how qualified I am, but one thing I think that I, I am is I am really passionate and I care deeply that there shouldn't be stuff that's off the table. We should be allowed to talk about whatever it is we want to talk about, you know? And in 2006, that year that I won the All-Star, 2007, I cycled a bicycle across Canada. But 2008, I went through a really hard 18 months, like where um, looking back, it was depression, but also probably a breakdown of sorts. And for the most part, I patched myself back together. And then at the end, towards the end of the experience, I went and saw a counsellor and she kind of helped me make sense of it all. But I pretty much put myself back together and very painful, like very, like, and surprising. I didn't think things like that happened and was naive and I definitely didn't think it happened to people like me who were who had it all or felt like they had it all um, but it brought things up to the surface that I had to look at and it was blessing in disguise I do it all over again but it really was gold disguised as dirt and 18 months of it so when I came out the other side of that I remember thinking to myself now this you need to remember Liam this is 2008 like mental health wasn't talked about like it is now we're in them we're entering in to the recession at the time or the, the global financial crisis and then 2009 I came back to Ireland I was studying in Canada and I recall saying to Desi Farrell the CEO of the Gaelic Care Association come here there must be more I'd read his read bits of his book and knew he had depression and it rang true for me and I said there must be more than you and me Desi like why don't we do something for players who might be struggling 
And he said, great idea. Uh, so we started talking to the HSC and the HSC, I still remember the day they, they rang to say, look, promising idea, but our funding is about to be cut. There's a crisis in, in all the departments. So there's going to be no money. And, and I was also trying to set up a life. I came back with a degree in sports science, but you know I didn't really want to work in sports science per se. So I was trying to figure out what to do. Um, and one evening I just happened to see a documentary about a guy called Jim Steins. I was a bit, I was not, not far off a like complete lost cause in terms of what to do with this want for something to do with mental health. Even though I didn't even know that word at the time and didn't even know what that meant. And the documentary was about Jim Steins. It was called Every Heart Beats True. And it just resonated straight away. And I said to myself, whatever he did with young people sounds amazing. But I kind of thought I'd had to go and get a job first. And then I come back to that and try that for a few months that this, this thing wouldn't go away. And um, excuse me, eventually I met someone who had similar interests, was further down the line, had contacted Jim's organization Reach, but they hadn't got back to him. So then it was all around the final weekend, 2011. Etty had asked me to speak at their annual lunch at um, before the game. I talked about this Jim Steins thing. I talked about that I think Ireland needed what Reach represented. And one of their, the Etty had people come up to me and said, look, if you want us to fly you down to check it out, we will. And I was like, wow, yes, because I'm broke. So I'd love to go leave leave Ireland for a few weeks and see what's and so we just arrived on Reach's door in Melbourne in a, in a part of Melbourne called Collingwood and said look we're here to learn and Jim was dying at the time he was very very ill I think they'd resigned themselves to the fact that he wasn't going to make it so like they were I didn't want to see Jim necessarily um, but I wanted to learn from Reach so for the next two weeks that's what I did I went to schools with some of their facilitators I sat in on some of their trainings and it just blew my mind. I couldn't believe that people got to do this at, as a teenager. The stuff that I'd done kind of for myself over the years by, you know, searching out books or, you know, getting tapes off people and going to courses. I couldn't believe that this could actually happen to you when you were in school. And it kind of turned my thinking about what school is upside down because I said to myself, but that's what we should be doing in school. Um, but we're not. So we just decided to bring that organization back to Ireland and that that's what we did and started in 2012 we went to one school in Killaloo and since then it's just been like if SOAR had more money they'd be in every school in Ireland um, but uh, I don't think society has caught up to what SOAR is doing yet but they will in time. So you go into schools and do workshops so like what does what does an average workshop look like what do the kids actually engage in? So usually when people come in, adults come in to do workshops for teenagers, they, they don't talk with them, they talk at them. And, and it's well-intentioned and one or two might get something from it, but it's usually an experience from the, the neck up. Um, and it's interesting and it's an intellectual conversation and, and it could be very helpful. What I learned from Reach was that at that age, there's a few things going on for young people. Two of the most important are they're emotionally charged and they want an emotionally engaging experience. If you can give them that, you'll grab their attention. And secondly, they are asking big questions, but they don't know how to almost articulate it. Um, and usually because of the way maybe adults look at them, they, they don't engage with adults about the things they're really interested in. Like, why are we here? Am I gay? Am I straight? 
you know, all this stuff that's big, they don't really have a place to talk about that unless they start to experience problems like identity issues, you know, self-harm, eating disorders. Then they go and talk to someone about these issues. But usually I say to myself, why does it have to get to that stage? And then what about all the other young people who are just at that stage where they're forming their identity? So SOAR has reached it, picks people to facilitate the workshops who are young, you know, starts at 18, 19, who's early 20s. And they go in, they don't talk at the teenagers. They talk with them using a program that we developed um, where it elicits honesty and they facilitate that. They don't shirk if someone breaks down and starts to cry about their grandfather that died the week before and that grandfather was the only person that that teenager trusted. He listened and didn't judge. So a sore facilitator wouldn't shut that down. They'd see this is where the wisdom is at um, and everyone's going to learn by what this teenager is saying. So what happens? <laughs> Usually it's like a it's hard to predict, but by and large, the most honest conversation that group of teenagers has ever had or heard happens in um, 99% of cases of schools. And what do they get from that? Well, the first thing they get is they get this great sense of empathy, not as a word or a concept or I should care about, but for real, because the person who seems to have it all actually cries themselves to sleep at night or mother isn't around or dad beats them um, or is just absent. So it kind of, it dismantles the masks they wear, which means that they're more comfortable than the next day to go in and be themselves without the mask. Um, and the second thing it usually does is it gives a sense of we're much more than what we, than we think we are. And then that sends them off in a bit of a search. And then thirdly, it usually flags young people who are struggling. Like I had several examples of young people who had plans to kill themselves or take their own life or suicide or whatever way you want to describe it, who came up after the workshop to me or one of the teachers and said, look, I thought I was weak to have these thoughts. I realize I'm not, but I need some help. So that's kind of some of the outcomes of what SOAR does. And I suppose, is there any, is it always consistent what young people are struggling with or do they change as, as time goes on? Do more, or like what are so, teenagers struggling with these days? Well, it's so consistent that they're struggling with all the same things their parents or grandparents did, but there's a few things dolloped on top of that. By and large, they're struggling with trying to make sense of things that are going on in the world. So it's everything from families breaking up loss of loved ones especially grandparents it comes up in nearly every workshop um, and beyond that it's eating disorders it's self-harm it's depression it's you know a lack of hope there are some of the issues and then there's just kids that are lost they feel they feel so bored in school they feel so bored by life that they're kind of asking what's the sense of all this and then there's some kids in there who are having a great time and have great families and feel but they they leave feeling so grateful for what they have. So it's a bit of, a, it's, it's everything. It's the human, you know, it's the whole kaleidoscope of human emotion. It's just sore allows them to talk about it and helps them do it in a way that doesn't feel awkward. And um, I like, are things getting better than our, since you started or like a, with the social media and stuff and feeling like the world is ending all around you all the time? Are, are things getting worse or better? Well, I haven't, been in schools with Sorny in well I was in one in December but that was just to see two facilitators that I had met when they were sitting in us in two different schools as participants and they've now gone through and trained and they were amazing stand at the top of the room um but 
one thing I think that's happened, and I definitely noticed it since 2012 to 2019 when I stepped down, was there's so much talk about mental health that the first stage was it became allowed to talk aloud. You know, it became normalized. But what I noticed happening was it's almost like young people learned a language about how to articulate what was going on for them. So they became more self-aware, but then they also became more articulate about how to, to talk about it. That's something maybe even their parents don't have. So I used to often, so many times hear a boy or a girl or, you know, um, a gender neutral, non-identifying human being talking about something that was going on in their life. And they were so self-aware and so articulate. I said to myself, wow, some of the CEOs I meet who are running large corporations, they would want to go and learn from that teenager. Because teenagers have become, I think young people have become much more skilled at being aware of and articulating their interior world in a way that sometimes our teachers aren't. Final thing on that then, for you then, what's the ideal set up in schools around topics like that and how to teach it? I, that's something I wrestle with all the time. Like the beauty of SOAR is we go in, usually there's two facilitators who've done a huge amount of personal inner work through the training and they're standing there and they're comfortable and they're, they're confident and they can talk about their hardships and they don't shy, shirk from it. But they come in and they leave and there's a benefit in that, you know, whereas if you're seeing a teacher the next day and it's like, talk, it's easier to talk to a friend or a stranger than a family member. It's a strange thing. I don't know. I don't understand it. Um, but I do wrestle with that a lot. What is the ideal scenario? I think that the education system as we have it has been incredible to some extent. And the one it's got us to where we are, but it's not going to be enough to get us to where we need to go. So, you know, there's a well-being course now, but anecdotally I've heard of teachers being given it and having to teach it and not knowing exactly how to. I think if you're going to work and teach and I say teach, but more so facilitate young people learning about themselves. You've got to have done a lot of that work on yourself. You have to. It's like not knowing how to paint and teaching painting. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not a simple fix, but it's almost like if you could merge a psychologist, a teacher, and a crazy person into one and send them into schools, then you'd have, you'd have the right type of teacher. But it's where things are going. Like the amount of young people or parents who contact me and their son can't go to school, can't leave the bedroom, has OCD, you know, another girl in his class has an eating disorder. It's so rampant at the moment. I think there's something in that. Like, I honestly think that, and this wouldn't be every, a lot of people would find this crazy and wouldn't agree with it, but it's my own point of view on it is that it's almost like there's something wise inside young people is telling us this is not working for me. I don't need maths. I need something else. There's something very wise almost. And I see so many parents saying, my child just won't go to school. And they have very valid reasons for why they won't go. Um, and I think the valid reason is there's something intelligent in young people that's saying, this is not helping me. It's harming me. I, I'm not going to allow myself to do it. So what do we do then? The school system is great, but in some ways it's so redundant. It's in the areas that young people and all of us need that. It's like it's um, if my son came to me, said, I'm going to go to first and second and I'm just I'm going to decide I want to do something else. I'd say wise call if that's what you feel is best for you. Um, 
It's an interesting take. I kind of choose my words carefully because I know so many amazing teachers, but a lot of the teachers I meet would tell me that the curriculum is not working and they're not trained to deal with what's coming in the door. Like they could be dealing with someone coming in the door who's having an emotional, you know, nightmare of a day and they're a teacher and they have to try and deal with that. Like imagine it. I admire teachers so much, but we're, we're, we need to accelerate massively how we're providing a, a space for that age group to transition it into adulthood because the one that we have them in, it's not working for in, in large parts. Yeah, I think anyone, yeah, I think I didn't learn anything about that in school anyway. So you kind of have to seek it out yourself, don't you? If, you, if you want to learn about it. Yeah, I know. It'd be lovely if it was a little bit more intentional than that. But yeah, you do. You kind of seek it out yourself. So our second track. Second track is um, Matlamore. And is it Can't Hold Us Down? Can't, um, hold, can't hold Us, yeah. Can't Hold Us. That would be my second track. It's also my son's favorite song. Is there, five. is there any context behind it in a specific time in your life? Or? The song that like, whenever I feel I need to get a kick in the ass, I listen to that song. I want to really get myself moving and and kind of the video is amazing for the, for the same reasons. It's kind of the whole video for those who haven't seen it is about them planting this flag for for the heist on the top of this building. And I think there's something in that about going out and planting your flag. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit get up. First shot, come strut walking. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Cosby's for the game. Nope, nope, y'all can't copy up. Bad, moonwalking. And this here is our party. My posse's been on Broadway and we did it all way. Chrome music. I shed my skin and put my bones into everything I record to it. And yet I'm on. Let that stage light go and shine on down. Got that Bob Barker soup game and Plinko in my style. Money, stay on my craft and stick around for those pounds. But I do that to pass the torch and put on for my town. Trust me, on my I N D E P E N D E N T shit hustling. Chasing dreams since I was 14 with the portrait busting. Halfway across that city with the back, 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 crushing. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give that to the people, spread it across the country. Labels out here, now they can't tell me nothing. We give it to the people, spread it across the country. Here we go back, this is the moment, tonight is the night, we'll fight till it's over, so we put our hands up like the ceiling can hold us, like the ceiling can hold us. Okay, um, I want to touch on your hurling career, 2006 All-Star, thoughts on your hurling career now, looking back? It went by fast, <laughs> even though all the time didn't feel like that, um, I would have some regrets. I think, you know, everyone does. We weren't successful as a team per se. You know, we're beating another final. Um, I wish I'd enjoyed it more and just enjoyed the process more. I wish I'd realized how good I was uh, uh, because I think I was, in hindsight, I was much better than I gave myself credit for uh, while I was playing it, which at times made, you know, you were so afraid to fail at times. I wish I'd been a little bit more fearless um, and not taking it as seriously. But I suppose I'm proud of how much I got out of myself 
coming from a club that didn't have a history of anyone playing for Clare. So I'd no one particularly to look up to, like DJ Carey was my idol. That's who I, I studied. But it taught me so much. Jeez, it taught me so much about just sticking with stuff that it's still paying me back today. And, so, and it opened so many doors in life that otherwise wouldn't have even been available to me. Yeah, well, I know you didn't have many to look up to, but you've definitely left a legacy. And I'd say that team that went to the All-Ireland final definitely were looking up to you when they were coming up saying that they could play for Clare and, and play well. I know, that was Geez, that was incredible just watching them but like to see the players that ballet are producing obviously tony is just a joy to watch like it's like if you didn't know anything about ballet and you watch the best ballerina in the world you could appreciate it and it's the same with tony and hurling i'd say that's the first time he's ever been compared to the ballerina but he is even a ballerina how he moves yes, it's a joy to watch um, but like, yeah joy um but uh, no, that team, that Ballet team, that was unbelievable. Like it was, you know, surreal. it was surreal. It was the most surreal thing I've ever experienced. Yeah, I know. You go park meeting other people from Ballet, and you're thinking, "Geez, oh, we were junior in 1999. How did all this happen?" Um, you've a great quote I came across. Um, this is called "More Than a Runner" because I suppose the whole concept behind it is being tied to your identity, and mm. I, I suppose you can attest that it's probably not a good idea to do that. Because you have a great quote here. It says. If athletes were able to see themselves as more than their sport while still playing their sport, they would build, they would lay the foundations for a much more full life experience when the curtains went down, the lights were turned off and the crowd had gone home. In essence, a wonderful new chapter of their lives would open up when they stopped playing. Mm-hmm. D- did you learn that in your time playing or was it after the fact? Uh, probably after the fact, because like for two, three years, like my saving grace was, was going to Canada because I got to see the much bigger world while I was still in the, the world of hurling. So I probably had a sense that beforehand. And then when I retired, like I retired young enough, retired at 29, but I covered a lot of ground. So it was like, I was tired of the whole thing and I, I knew we weren't going to be successful for a few years. And, and, and like, then you leave and you're like, okay, so what, what do, what, who, who am I? I know that sounds like a very, you, you mentioned privileged thing to ask yourself, but we all need to know who we are and where we're going. At least it helps. So when I retired, I, you know, I, I definitely were ask, was asking that question. Um, and I think about the guys that all they ever had was hurling and that was it. Like, I, I, I don't know, like you, you, by 29, 30, 31, 32, that's the biggest you've achieved, the most you will in your life. I think that's sad. Yeah. Life's only starting. Yeah, you see it a lot in athletics, like people are, it's almost like they're literally running away from things and they just kind of see running as their, their identity. And um yeah. So do you, you, yeah, you, do you still come across like people that you played with or people that you played against and they're still kind of that person, the hurler, they're not kind of... That, yeah, it's fun because I usually have the guys reaching out or reconnecting who are just waking up to the fact they're more than a hurler, but they're 30, 38, 39. <laughs> and it's usually because something's gone wrong in their life and they've plumped this identity and it's been enough to keep them going during the day, but it doesn't help them sleep at night the identity that they formed and, and they're trying to push the edges of the identity. So I don't really, I, I say, I don't meet or talk to a lot of hurling people, not, not because out of design. I just, my life has other interests. Do I watch the games? Absolutely. Do I still puck around even with Jerome at home? Yes. I played a bit of junior last year, um, but I don't come across, I don't mix in the circles that are the, the hurling circles as such. I have a few friends that I played with like Frank Lone, I'd stay in touch with Jerry Quinn. 
But apart from that, I wouldn't really stay in touch with a lot of the guys I played with, which is which is a pity because you spent so many years together, but you never really get to know each other. That's the thing. So when the game ends, there's nothing that binds you together anymore. There's no reason to be in touch. When you said you went through that bit, that patch of depression, um, was that tied to like your identity being tied to hurling? Because I remember being in school kind of when you won the Ulster, we were like doing up placards for you and all. It was like you were like a local hero. So was it going from that to yeah. kind of kind of being like, geez, like who am I? Yeah. What, what am I doing? Like Yeah, totally. It had had a he, that breakdown was all about identity. Um, and it was about, you know, you talk about running away. I cycled away from how I felt about my father's passing. You know, I'm one of seven. They were all there on the bedside. I wasn't. I, I chose to stay in Camden and try and finish my exams. You know, hindsight's great, but in hindsight, I would have had a sense of the seriousness of his condition and come home earlier. And um, so I cycled. I first of all, I hurled like 2006. I went full time, poured myself into into just playing full time. And um, so didn't really have to think about how how actually am I? How am I? You know, how do I feel about the fact that all of a sudden this person you look up to and you love and is gone? I didn't even stop, and then when the all-star was won i was come back on the flight from nova scotia to collect the all-star you know keeping it to myself that i i was getting it but i had a fair sense i was because vodafone organized the flights and i'd already planned a cycle you know so i was now i was going to cycle away from the issue and it was nice in one way doing the cycle because every interview they asked you about my father but i could stay above it you know i'm doing this heroic thing for my father but i it was never about how are you doing, Tony? Like how are you with that? Right. Yeah. Um, never. It was always about it's great what you're doing for the, the guys with cancer. You know, then it was so exciting because we went from an idea to like 30, 40 people cramming into my apartment in Halifax every Thursday night to plan the whole thing. Um, Lance Armstrong asked you to go to his house in Texas and spend time with them. All these things that were like dream come trues happening that I didn't have any reason to stop and say, oh, how am I doing? Throughout the cycle, I'd meet people who were either dying or had lost someone they loved, not just from cancer, from suicide, from everything. And they'd come out and they'd meet me on, you know, the middle of Winnipeg or Man Manitoba or Saskatchewan. They'd come out and meet me on the road and spend a day with me or a few hours with me, or I'd stay with them that night. And it was always about their grief. And it was as if they thought, well, he's over, he's, he's fine. And again, it wasn't like, it was just exciting. I didn't have to stop and think, how am I doing? So then I went back to college in 2007 when the cycle ended. Like eight weeks after the cycle ended, I was back in college, back sitting, except this time I had to do more courses to finish because I'd taken some off to train for the cycle. So I was under serious pressure academically. And then it just won't even just hit me. It just hit me like a ton of bricks. I did not see it coming. But when I look back now, there was a few weeks before that where I wasn't myself. I just, I couldn't motivate myself for anything. And then bang, it just hit me one night. And, you know, that was, that was a dark night, man, a dark night. And just walking around the streets of Halifax, not knowing who, who, who I was. Like, I was like, I was lost. I could have been, you know, I could have been someone that was homeless for, for all a stranger would know because I was just in a trance. And, um, then that began around an 18 month period where for the first six to eight months, I thought I'd lost my mind. Like I really thought I'll never get back to feeling like me, but little did I know I was being prepared 
to be so much more what at the time was very very painful it must have been extremely cathartic then to write your screaming at the sky book yeah because the guy that i wrote it with and did the majority of the writing um he did the majority of the writing tj flynn he got it like he'd been through an episode similar and he just when i handed him my diaries and said i think i'm writing this book would you write it with me it was very serendipitous because he read it and he goes i just understand where you're coming from so he was able to help write the story so well because he had he, he could be writing his own story. The final thing on the GA is GA lad culture. Yeah. Um, I doubt any of this kind of stuff was being discussed in GA dressing rooms, are there? No, never. Never. <laughs> I remember on one training camp in Portugal, one guy came up to me. Of course, we were both fluid or drunk. And uh, we trained hard all week. So Anthony Daly gave us one night out. And on the bus back to the hotel, I remember him coming up and basically bleeding his heart out to me and I was a bit shocked but that was the only time I ever and he was struggling at the time that I remember someone kind of half opening up and um, when I look back like because I've worked with so many teams since where I get to know them very well and I could you know maybe 30% of them are struggling at one point at any one point maybe close to 40% and I mean struggling like I mean going to training and that's their relief from the day of being in their own head. And I said to myself, geez, we must have had so many of those on our, on our teams of, you know, 2002 to 2009. But it wasn't talked about, you know. A lot has happened in the 2000s. Like, the world has come a long way and teams have come a long way. And people have become so much more emotionally intelligent that um, there's a lot more on the table, I suppose. Yeah, do you think the culture can still get a lot better? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, like... I've done a bit of work last year with an inter-county football team and it's definitely moving in the right direction. But again, it goes back to the same principles as the schools. There's someone required. It can't be the manager per se. Now he can, he or she can set the culture and can embody what the culture, how much the culture can stretch or the, the capsule container of the dynamic in the squad, how far that can stretch. They can embody that. And that allows some of it to just naturally breathe. But it also needs someone that will open up that space. Sometimes that can be a sports psychologist. The only thing about sports psychologists is usually it's through the funnel of performance. Whereas just in my own experience of working with teams, you know, Dublin Hurlers or the football, the football team is, um, and even the, a, a basketball team I worked with in Nova Scotia was that, you need someone to come in and be the center point to create um, the space that allows for the culture to be one where guys bring all of themselves and the shadowy or parts they don't see or interpret as a weakness because all it does is allow someone else to bring their shadow or parts and the whole, what what's created is this bond this like sense of brotherhood that um guys trust each other more they trust themselves more and they're the squads that 20 years later are still meeting up mm. because they've gone somewhere before and they don't know what what it is but it's not just success like that's where i think sometimes when i see teams that win multiple all irelands i often ask ask myself will they still meet up in 20 years time and love meeting up because that's going to be much more important than the all ireland they won in 63 or 2008 yeah. or whatever and that's why i love I know Dante Farrell very, very well. And, I, you know, I would consider him a friend. I love what he's doing because I just love the types of environments I know he'll create. And it's one where those players will meet up in 30 years' time, not because there's a function and they feel they should go, but because they'll be friends for 30 years. Not every one of them, 
but as a group, there'll be a closeness that um, it'll outshine what they want together. Yeah, it's it's like lightning in a bottle. It's very intangible, but it's when you get but, it, it's, it's nice to be a part of. So true. What a great description. Um, track three. Uh, track three is track three is Modest Mouse, and the song is Spitting Venom. Bit of Johnny Marr. Modest Mouse. Is that Johnny Marr? I don't even know what his name is. I, I think he's the he's the guitarist in Modest Mouse. She's like I could have picked ten of their songs. You know, float on dashboard, but uh, Spitting Venom has a little bit of uh, attitude to it, and um, yeah. I think in 2008, because we were talking about it, it's a song that kind of, when I was at my lowest, it was a song that there was enough rage and anger in it that that's sometimes just what kept me going was that that song. We were spitting venom at most everyone we know. If the damned gave us a roadmap, then we'd know just where to go. Now let it drop. Let it all drop. Let it all drop. I let it all fall off. Well, you were talking so to pop. You talking quite a lot. The opinions that I do not give. The opinions I ain't got. So let it drop. Let it all drop. Let it all drop. Let it all fall off. Yeah. everyone you know if you truly knew the gravity you'd know which way to go well let it drop let it all drop let it all drop i'll let it all fall off my ears were pressing firmly right against your mouth here when you tried to spit them out your words were not so clear now drop Yeah, I think Johnny Marr. Johnny Marr was the Smiths. I think he. Oh, was he? I think he was. I think he was the guitarist then in Modest Mouse. I'm fairly sure. They're so good. Well, I love them. But anyways, okay. Stuff, man. Way more than me. Yeah, that's one of my big passions. Yeah. Um, uh, final section. What does the future hold for you? Oh, I don't know. Lee. I don't know. 
I, well, I suppose one thing that in terms of like what you're going to do for a job, Tony, um, I really enjoyed writing the book and I have an idea for another, uh, kind of something quite different, but a follow up. Um, and I'd like to do more and more of that. I just found the writing process so enjoyable that I'd like to do more of that and write as much as I can for as long as I can about things that interest me. Um, you're still involved with SOAR, yeah? Yeah, so the CEO that took over from me, Mark is his name, Mark McDonald, is doing a fantastic job in difficult circumstances with, with the pandemic. So I kind of assist him wherever he needs and I assist the programs team, which they train the facilitators. So I do not, I now do the part that I enjoy, whereas at the end I was just managing a team of 12 people and keeping funding coming in and people paid and workshops running. But my part now is very, very hands-off. I don't know what's going on. It's not my business. I just help them when they need help in, a, in any particular area. So what's next for me? You know, we have a five-year-old, six on Saturday, and we have a, a almost a nine-month-old. And that's, that's the main show in town, really. I'd like to write more. I'm doing, I'm doing a little bit of, not a little bit, doing a lot of exploration around... Um, uh, what modern day spirituality could look like um, and doing a lot of reading around near-death experiences and death in itself and all of that and usually when I'm doing that amount of kind of being drawn to a subject it's going to go somewhere and it's just a matter of trusting that it's going there and still keeping the, the, the bills paid. Um, obviously with COVID there's a lot of anxiety, frustration do you have any advice for people, young people, in kind of um, get, getting through all this? Yeah, it's such a t- difficult time. Everyone has their own way of dealing with it. Um, like, how do you deal with something that you can't see and you, you, you don't know how you can stay at home and you can do all those things, but it's very hard to know how to deal with something that's new and it's such uncharted waters for everyone. I think what it has done is brought to the surface for us to face fully frontal is that we can't run away from our feelings and it's funny it's kind of a theme of our conversation is the damage that occurs and the build-up that happens when you do run away from your feelings and you you're so afraid to feel them like my son jerome said to me one day dad why why are adults so afraid to cry and i said geez i don't know it's a good question and we were talking about it and he said you know until i saw an adult cry i actually used to think that they weren't able to the adults aren't, weren't able to, you know how Jesse can't walk yet, that adults couldn't cry. I said, of course, you, how would you not? So I think when you say advice, feeling your feelings and knowing that they're not going to kill you necessarily is, um, is very important. And even if that's feeling the fear, it's, I think if we could learn to feel it, um, and there's a quote in the book, um, whatever you don't feel, you feed. And it's to feel it. Now, that doesn't mean you need to be a victim to it necessarily and wallow in it, because then you need to find ways, whether it's your music or it's your run or it's your whatever, to get you moving again. I think there's a lot to be said for feeling what we're feeling and knowing that it's not going to stay around forever if we allow ourselves to feel it. If that's fear, worry, feel it. Allow yourself to feel it and then maybe just allow it pass on and tell it, okay, I want to feel something else now. Um, like for teenagers and at the moment I'm hearing from a lot of parents whose teenagers you know are struggling they're in their rooms they're really struggling 
very often the parent needs to just manage their own anxiety as well and and just trust that the teenager is going to be okay now if they're self-harming that's different you need you need to step in but very often they're saying to me geez johnny used to be like this he used to be very enthusiastic about everything and now he's not and i'd say well see to yourself first manage your own anxiety you know allow that and trust that your teenager is wise and they'll find their way you just may need to be okay with not having the answers for them yeah and that final question almost everyone listening is probably involved in athletics and you've worked with teams and stuff from your own career and working with teams what would be <laughs> probably a hard question a piece of advice you'd give to someone in, in their sport as an individual just doing their sport yeah, I suppose that thing of ident- that maybe the thing we touched on identity and I suppose that quote I read of yours as well. So is there anything you look back on and say you wish you did that? Are you wish I'd you- say firstly, like enjoy it more. Like I know it's a hard one to say when you're striving and you're pushing and it's like if you squeeze anything too tight, you'll you'll choke it. So it's to have a lighter touch and allow yourself to just explore who you are through your sport. Um and maybe allow yourself to reconnect with why you love the sport. What, what is it that, what's your why, I suppose, in why you're doing what you're doing? Like, what is it that gets you out running the roads? And just, just ask loads of questions. Why do I love this sport? Ask that question. What, why am I in love with this? Why do I do this? Um, and that might connect you to kind of the, the lightning in the bottle, but your sport. Um, and then I think the second thing is have other interests. Like, you know, if you're all about running, someday you're going to get injured. So just cultivate other aspects to your personality and that will help your running because you, you will be a happier, more rounded individual. Um, and then that, the, the one that I often, you know, enjoy the fight that it takes with your mind. Like your mind will always find a reason not to, not to keep going in a race. And I, looking back and say geez they were lovely little battles to win where you set your mind you know what we're not going to die here we're not going nothing's going to happen so we're going to keep going and we're going to keep going again and then when we don't think we can go anymore we're going to keep going that's a good that's a good note to finish on so the teenagers book of life is going to be available end of february yeah february 18th uh, at teenagersbookoflife.com and we'll finish with your outro track yeah, and um, this one, when we were going through them, I didn't see it coming. Um, and then it did uh, Walk Unafraid by First Aid Kit, which could have been probably a summation of the advice for anyone in sport. As the sun comes up, as the moon goes down, these heavy notions creep around it makes me think long ago I was brought into this life a little lamb a little lamb courageous stumbling fearless was my middle name but somewhere